0: Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the Blockworks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. And If you could, leave a rating interview. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by Will Clemente and Felix Javin uh, from Reflexivity Research. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. What's going on, Michael?
1: Great to be here. Hey, great to
0: be here. This will be a fun one, guys. Um, You know, you, I think of of all the research shops that I sort of follow, you do a really good mix of blending what's going on in the macro and the crypto. um, And you seem to have uh, a very good sort of a bird's eye view of, of both um, kind of what's going on in macro at a high level, but then get very specific and I think very correct um, in terms of what's going on in the crypto space. So for folks just to maybe outline what we're going to talk about here, we're going to start talking about a little bit more high level macro stuff and then drill down into some more uh, specific crypto stuff. But uh, Felix, maybe I can maybe I can call on you here. You know, I'm, I'm sort of pulling from, uh, you know, your most recent report where you, I think, correctly predicted uh, rate cuts when that was definitely not a consensus opinion and people were talking about higher for longer. Uh, so maybe to just pull out this quote of yours, you know, any more rate hikes at this point are nothing but a dream. In fact, rate cuts are extremely likely in the near future. So the monetary policy can remain at the same level of restrictive, uh, at the same level of restrictive, let alone to loosen or accommodate any sort of potential recession on the horizon. And actually, Janet Yellen um, said something very similar, uh, just in terms of um, and kind of affirm that whole viewpoint. So, you know, what made you get sort of the the rate cuts? Obviously, we haven't actually gotten any of those yet in 2024, right? But just talk to us about your your sort of thinking at that and where you see um, rates heading into this coming year.
2: Yeah, totally. So, you know, the basis of that discussion was really around real rates and it's it's a bit more of a nebulous one because a lot of people have different ways of measuring what a real rate is because a real rate is the nominal in- interest rate that you have in the economy, uh, plus the either inflation expectations, um, you know, some people measure with break-even rates. Uh, some people even measure it with using CPI, which is you know a bit of an issue because that's a lagging indicator paired with a with a market-based indicator. So there's some issues there. But overall, big picture, what we've seen is that uh, interest rates have been coming up over the last 12 months, as we all know. Um, especially, you know, the the long end also caught up in the last uh, six or so months. So now we have this yield curve that's quite elevated, and at the same time, we've seen in, inflation actually you know peak out and start to come lower, and with that expectations for inflation on like a three to five year basis have also been coming down so as those inflation expectations come down if we just hold the nominal rate at the same rate that it's actually already at what that's creating is that the the spread between the two is actually increasing so that's actually increasing real interest rates Um, and as that occurs even if the federal reserve decides to stay flat on the short end on the federal funds rate that's actually creating marginal tightening without even hiking interest rates. So if we look at where, you know, either core PCE or CPI or core CPI, where that's heading recently, um, you know, one of the last leading or lagging indicators of inflation has been shelter um, and owner's equivalent rent, and that's been decreasing significantly. So as that continues um, and we get closer to that 2% range, what that's going to do is actually create further tightening if the Fed doesn't actually follow it downwards. So this is something that uh, um, Fed President Williams actually mentioned a few months ago, where he mentioned that, you know, hinted at this idea that just to stay at the same level of neutral tightness, they would have to actually cut rates to come lower. And this is something that Powell actually mentioned in his last uh, press conference last week. Um, He, you know, one of the reporters, I forget which one, asked a question exactly about this. And he mentioned it's not exactly mechanical where they follow it perfectly down, but it is something that they follow very closely. um, And it is, you know, leading to where they're, attributing their, their FED dot plots in the next year. Um, you know, the confusing part now is that we live in this live market era where we where we price in things and there's this whole forward guidance thing. So as that discussion has been occurring, what we've seen is that uh, real rates have actually been coming lower because the, the medium to long end of the curve have actually started to price that in because yields have been decreasing. Um, the only part of the curve that hasn't followed that obviously is the short end because that's fixed by the Fed and the federal funds rate. So you know, if if all else is equal and, you know, we, we might shift around a little bit in that medium to long curve, uh, duration of the curve, um, if they don't follow down on that short end, it's actually going to continue to get tighter. So because of that reason, even if we're not saying that there's going to be marginal uh, <clears throat> loosening of monetary policy in 2024, just to stay at the same pace that we're at right now, they need to cut. So for me, just piecing that all together, and you can see exactly like you said, Yellen and Powell both had that. Uh, inclination of, of mentioning that fact, uh, it's it's pretty clear that we are at the peak here just to stay even at the same neutral level we need to cut.
0: All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at Blockworks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, Blockworks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers, so that's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, I think big banks, payment providers, et cetera, and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets, DAS London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices, all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, One, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets, so that stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, giving you an extra code, margin20. So... Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. I'd be curious to get your perspective. You know, we've had Andy Constant on the program uh, a lot recently, one of, one of the old great beards. And, you know, he sort of had this, this five-act uh, play. Um, and, you know, one of the things that it was kind of his act three, or one of the things that he was looking for is basically for um, term premia to compress uh, for the yield curve to uninvert, And it looked like that was going to happen. And now a lot of the, the, the quote unquote progress that the Fed has made has been ultimately reversed. And, you know, zooming out of even like mm-hmm. the short term of the next, let's say one or two years, I understand, I understand the need for the Fed not to want to over tighten financial conditions, but how do you, how do you sort of weigh that against the the sort of stop, start inflation that we've seen, you know, in the seventies or the forties, because obviously the risk here is we haven't done enough. There hasn't been a recession and I can see inflation taking off here just look at what the stock market's doing we're back to all-time highs so what do you think about that risk
2: yeah yeah first off i'm a huge fan of andy and his work and that five-act play has been fantastic and you know he really nailed the last few months especially with the qra uh, supply issues that were coming to light so you know all props to him he's nailed a ton of stuff recently um you know i think that overall this uh this five-act play has indeed you know been pausing we're almost back at that step one that he mentions um You know, one of the big reasons for that occurring, and I think he mentioned this as well, is that they started to soften their supply issuance on the medium to long end of the yield curve. And that really reset expectations a bit. So back in November, I had a similar view where um, I put out this tweet saying that, you know, if we get uh, this this softer QRA issuance, especially on the medium to long end of the yield curve, paired with a more dovish Fed on the margin. I could see uh, equities testing all-time highs by the end of the year. And we're basically there now, you know, like a month and a half later. So I think we are back to square one. And really the, the core of the issue here is whether you believe in the system that is perfectly efficient and fair or whether you, you know, I'm not saying that there's, there's you know, shady political games going on, but I do think there is certain incentive structures, you know, around re-election um, and different aspects like that that could drive people to make irrational decisions. And, you know, I, I, I think, Powell and, and the team would want everything possible to make them be somebody like a Volker and not an Arthur Burns. But I think, um, you know, it's it's a more complicated world that we live in and it can make us do irrational decisions. You know, that's really the core of what game theory is, is to, to make uh, decisions that are not perfectly rational. Um, but seem rational when uh, compared to these other circumstances. So I think that's going to lead us to having this uh, more stop-start economy with these higher cyclical inflation cycles. Um, I don't think inflation is is dead by any means. And I think this is a, a clear reason this paired with fiscal dominance just, you know, continuing to get higher is going to lead to these uh, circumstances continuing into the future. So I think we are in a way, Somewhat lucky that we're just following inflation down, but obviously we know CPI is lagging. Um, and I do think that's going to come to bite us in mid 2024. I do think we are back somewhat at square one and we're a lot looser than what is uh, being talked about by the Fed. So I, I want to connect that with
0: a subject that I know that you've spoken quite a bit about. So you mentioned fiscal dominance and obviously the deficits, I talked about it quite a bit on on this program. I feel like it's getting some coverage, but probably not the amount that it ultimately deserves. I mean, I know, Felix, you have a lot of thoughts and have written pretty extensively about the US fiscal situation, debt, and the long-term sustainability there. Can you just kind of walk us through what your overall framework is for looking at the US fiscal situation? And then I I ultimately want to come back and tie that to the inflation picture, and then we can get into crypto.
2: Totally. Yeah. So essentially, Um, You know, there's a few fixed obligations that the Treasury have to uh, support, you know, things like defense spending, things like Medicare and Medicaid. And, and these are obligations that have been somewhat set in stone. You know, I don't think there's any congressperson that's going to get up there and say, hey, we need to decrease defense spending, especially in this world where we're seeing these ge- geopolitical conflicts keep increasing rather than decreasing. So what we have is this baseline of these certain obligations um, that the Treasury has to meet. Um, and then on the side of that, there's this more you know variable expense, which is interest rate, um, expenses on the debt of the treasury. So this is something that, you know, there's this chart that went around uh, pretty often a few months ago of the Congressional Budget Office, uh, just looking at deficits as a percentage of GDP. Um, and I think it really shocked a lot of us. I remember I saw you tweeted it as well. But, you know, just the fact that by 2050, they see, you know, deficits as a percentage of GDP being at negative 10% is is quite shocking to come from a government institution to be uh, suggesting that that's going to happen. So what we're and, that, and they're we're usually on the low end, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. What the surprising. That, was, <laughs> that consistently misses yeah. to the low end. So yeah,
2: <laughs> so so yeah, exactly. It's it's shocking. So we're in this world where interest expenses are going up. And they're going up mostly for the U.S. Treasury because they have to issue debt. Um, And more than that, they have to be issuing debt on the the shorter end of the curve because there's way less marginal buyers on the longer end of the curve. And this is the core of the issue of what was occurring in the last few months where we saw these uh, quarterly refunding announcements from the treasury, where they'd recommend where they're going to issue in terms of duration and amount um, on that curve. And consistently they'd be coming to the shorter end of the curve because they know that if they issue T-bills, they'll have that reverse repo, um, you know, nest egg basically of a sideline liquidity that they know that can buy it up. But that's, you know, this is just short end, you know, short-term thinking like that's that reverse repo is at 700 billion. Now it's going to be gone and, within a year pretty confidently. So that's a short-term fix, but the long-term fix is you have consistently increased uh, debt that needs to be refinanced at now secularly higher interest rate levels, um, and somebody needs to buy it. And at the same time, we're seeing either you know, consistent marginal buyers step out of that market um, or become outright sellers. You know, One of the consistent charts that I've seen is around uh, foreign central banks and foreign sovereigns. Um, you know, there's been a bit of a confusing chart because a lot of those charts that show total U.S. Treasury holdings are showing it in a dollar value. And of course, the dollar value is going to come down because uh, basically every bond in the world has been decreasing in price over the last couple of years because interest rates have been going higher. But even then, um, the fact is none of them are buying it. There's, there's it's, it's pretty confident. There's a lot of debate around whether they're selling, but we know they're not buying nearly as much anymore. So they're out of the game in terms of buying that debt. Hedge funds are pretty much maxed out. Um, you know they have that carry trade going on where they basically buy the 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 spot u uh, s <coughs> treasury and then short the 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 futures um, and and you know basically make money on that carry so they 're pretty maxed out on that. Um, central banks are net uh, not full on sellers but quantitative tightenings occurring, so they 're definitely not buying. Uh, you know re u s retail has been buying up uh, and making up a lot of a lot of that gap recently in terms of who 's buying the debt, but again that 's also not necessarily sustainable, especially if we 're moving into a world where interest rates are coming lower because as that occurs there 's going to be this rebalancing effect where oh that five percent uh, t bill yield that I was getting is now three percent, and you know I would rather go into equities now, so they could actually become net sellers of that short end debt. Um, so overall, what we're getting into this big picture world is just asking ourselves, who's going to buy all this debt? And it really, you know, when you when you go through the motions of of analyzing these marginal buyers, you get to this point where you say, okay, there's either we need to have new laws or regulation to make, say, banks buy up more debt. Um, you know, tweaking things like the supplementary leverage ratio and stuff like that or we need the Fed to come in and start buying this debt and monetizing that debt. Uh, like what we saw in 2020, where they were directly you know, buying the debt, not necessarily just from the secondary market, but basically monetizing debt. So that we, it was that world of monetary uh, theory. So... I think that's the end game that we're going at. Is that somebody will need to eventually step in because we we have a you know we have seven hundred billion dollars in reverse repo buffer, and after that things are going to get a lot more hairy.
0: One thing that I've started to to wonder because that that is the ultimate question, right? And mm-hmm. I, I've noticed that I think especially like Bitcoiners versus more traditional financial folks, uh, they they sort of whistle. What's that expression? Like you're whistling past each other in the night, ships passing in the night, whatever it is. Uh, and and I think it's because. Uh, People are talking on different timelines here. Uh, Like So so for instance, I just think there's not much risk. And this is where there's a little bit of a boy who cried wolf effect because people have been talking about this since literally the end of the 1980s, probably even before (laughs) that, when we started to run our first deficits. um, And it's been totally fine. And the reality is there's a lot of levers that the US can pull. I think um, people consistently underestimate the amount of levers that Institutions like Treasury and Fed have to pull; they're extremely powerful levers, uh, and they can probably keep getting us through for a while. But on a long enough time horizon, you know, first of all, there's never been a long term successful issuer of of a reserve currency, and debt is always a part of the story when it comes to, you know, however you want to crumbling empires or whatever. But (laughs) I, 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 I have been starting to wonder if we're in the the intermediate end game currently, because. You know, sometimes I like to put myself in the position of like, what if I had unilateral control of the government and I was just looking at the situation where, you know, the the amount of debt that we're having is outpacing the amount of economic growth. That's the fundamental part of the math problem. And the the really the only way that you can ultimately fix there is to do some sort of reset. You know, this would be in corporate finance, this would be a restructuring. Um and how how do you do that? Right. You 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 find a way to lessen the restriction that you have on your debt. And the way that you do that is kind of growth. So you can either like cross your fingers and knock on wood and pray for productivity, which I think has actually been the the strategy of policymakers for the last 10 or 15 years. I think that's what they've been secretly hoping for. But if all that fails, you can sort of inflate your way around it, um, uh, inflate your way out of it. And we've been growing GDP. You know, the nominal prints that we're producing on GDP are unheard of, uh, at least in the US in the last 20 or so years. So I've been sort of starting to wonder if we're entering this end game where Higher than normal growth, higher than normal inflation, maybe inflation settles around three or 4%. Maybe we start to get these sort of, you know, think pieces about how 4% is actually much better than 2%. And, uh, you know, Paul Krugman comes out and <laughs> writes some tweets or an essay about it or something. And, and then we all just kind of call it, hey, that's the new target. And we're actually all just okay with that. And I've just been wondering if we're in
2: this sort of slow end game mm-hmm. uh, for a little while now. Totally. And I think that's actually paired with why a lot of people have missed this whole reception play and, and thinking it was going to occur sooner than it has. is because yeah. they're missing just how strong that fiscal component of it. Because when we look at the core of what GDP is, you know, it's, it's, it's consumer spending, it's investment, it's government spending, and it's net exports and that G function. Um, you know, you can debate about how that actually gets recognized in terms of where basically the interest expenses from the Treasury are going to the holders of the U.S. debt. But the fact is those people that own that U.S. debt, they're getting they're getting small stimmy checks every month or so. And 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 they're getting that yield that is much higher than it has been in the last few years. And they can take that and they can go do some discretionary spending. And that is continuing. And it's and it's this this endless loop that is increasing. And so, with that dynamic at play, and this and this regime of more fiscal dominance, it's hard to see why there would be necessarily a major recession occurring. I think we're we're a lot more moving to this world of, you know, you could call it financial repression. Um, You could call it inflating the debt away. But for sure, I think we're moving to this world and a lot of us have missed it is that there's this fiscal dominance and it's leading to people getting um, increased interest uh, payments. And that is keeping the economy afloat despite higher rates in other parts of the economy. Um, so totally, I think that's, that's a lot more of the world that we're going in than the one that we're used to, where we just play these classic business cycles. And every 10 years we get a recession and then, you know, debt comes lower, rates come lower, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're in this much more uh, wonky world because there's so many uh, more levers to play with. And it's a lot of, it's a, it's a much finer dance that we have to play. Yeah, I
0: agree. Well, you know, I'd love to get your your thoughts here on how this ultimately ends up connecting with, say, say Bitcoin or crypto. And maybe to set the scene, you yeah, know, we're recording this uh, December 20th. So we are, I don't know, the way I've repeated a lot of times on this on this podcast before, so bear with me <laughs> if like this is like the fifth time you've heard this, but I feel like we're at this sort of unique moment in time where we've had a lot of uh, headwinds turn into tailwinds over the course of the last two years. Like if you rewind the clock back to FTX, what was so devastating about that is like, not only did you have the FTX implosion and you kind of knew regulators were going to come after you now, and it was going to be horrible for prices, but you also had macro going against you. You had, uh, you know, this was like peak sort of fear about rate hikes. Um, I would say back at that time. And you also sort of had like this, um, Everyone knows sort of this four-year cycle. Uh, they had that as sort of their mental framework, and they're like, "Man, it's going to be years before we're even close to having." But now, you know, we're kind of looking at this, you know, potentially very good macro backdrop. Um, rates are moving in the right direction for us, and uh, we're a couple, you know, months, weeks, or months out from a potential spot ETF, um, which was not necessarily on my bingo card, and then uh, having. So, so walk us through. We'll like help translate some of the the macro that we talked about to your sort of current position on crypto.
1: Yeah, I think to kind of piggyback on, on what Felix said, uh, what a lot of people, I think, mis, uh, kind of misinterpreted about how Bitcoin behaves in terms of its role as kind of a macro asset is Bitcoin's not a CPI inflation hedge. Bitcoin is a monetary debasement hedge. And this is something that even myself, I, I made this mistake um, in kind of back half of 2020 into 2021 thinking, and, you know, kind of with the, with the benefit of, of hindsight, Um, Towards the back half of 2021, as CPI inflation ran up, um, I think a lot of people became confused once Bitcoin started to roll over, kind of the end of November into December of of 21. Um, But, you know, kind of seeing it through the lens of being a monetary debasement hedge, it makes total sense, right? Because kind of the asymmetry of where where you should be expecting liquidity to go from there was towards the downside, given the Fed was probably going to tighten monetary policy to combat inflation. Uh, and so I think now you've kind of got the inverse of that. So you've got inflation coming down now. And so it's okay. Well, what's kind of the asymmetric profile of, of liquidity from here? Uh, it's very much skewed to the upside from here. And I think, you know, uh, on the back end of that, so should kind of your, your expectations, uh, for Bitcoin. And yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple catalysts over the call, you know, next six to 12 months that are incredibly positive for Bitcoin. I don't really have an edge in kind of predicting, uh, you know, the short term price, at least at the moment, and, and I'm not doing so. I basically have the highest conviction in kind of where Bitcoin trades maybe over the the mid to long term. And I've got my portfolio constructed accordingly. You know, we've got uh, the ETF coming up on the horizon. I have no idea if it's, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news, sell the news, buy the rumor, buy the rumor, buy the, the rumor, good. who the hell knows? Um, I, I have no idea. You just got to, you know, look at the, the price action and kind of derivatives positioning going into that. I will say you know we've seen a ton, ton of uh, CME open interest uh which is most likely uh you know like kind of tradfi hedge funds maybe high net worths that are putting on the ETF trade and that OI probably has to kind of get unwound around and probably will around the ETF so maybe we see some kind of chop uh you know between the time of the approval and and the listing itself uh but you know I think when you kind of zoom out this is probably the the biggest point uh for for bitcoin in its history uh, you know kind of the legitimacy and, you know, like decrease in, decreasing career risk that's brought on by that stamp of legitimacy of, of an ETF, uh, the potential unlocking of passive flows, and then not to mention kind of the mass marketing blitz from all these massive financial institutions uh, that are going to try to get people to basically buy into this fee generation machine for them. I think all of those things shouldn't really be, you know, underestimated. Uh, Having in itself does the halving actually have a material effect on the actual supply-demand function of Bitcoin? I kind of lean in the camp of not really, but yeah, I think it's a great meme. And, uh, you know, after, yeah. And, and look, like after this halving, I think like the, the big talking point for Bitcoiners is, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people are, aren't are too fond of the stock-to-flow uh, pricing model, but just the ratio, the stock-to-flow ratio of Bitcoin will be greater than that of gold after this halving. So I think that's a great meme uh, kind of, you know, uh, while you have this backdrop of, uh, kind of, you know, net liquidity conditions increasing throughout that time period. Um, and then also, I think the other thing that, uh, not many people have talked about, and I think people have talked about the fact that it's an election year. Um, but, you know, the, the likelihood of us seeing, um, you know, either Trump or, or Vak or one of these, um, you know, more conservative candidates probably getting into office in the back half of last year. Uh, I think that would be a, a really po- especially Trump would be a, a very positive thing, uh, for the market as well in terms of, you know, if, if you were to step and he probably comes in and just, tells Powell to, to cut rates. Um, so yeah, I think there's a there's a ton of positive kind of catalysts on the horizon for Bitcoin. And, you know, I'm just sitting comfy in spot for the next kind of 12 to 18 months.
0: What's going on everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now many of you will probably f- be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin10 for a 10% discount and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you. Later. One of the questions that I get asked a lot is, for, well, first of all, retail, I don't think is back to this market yet. And they're not, doesn't even feel like they're particularly close. But, you know, one of the things that I yeah, it comes up in conversations with friends is like, we're never going to see another market like 2021 again. That was a once in a lifetime thing. The Fed pumped $7.5 trillion worth of liquidity into the market. You saw all this crazy stuff. And if there is another cycle, it's going to be much more muted. I sort of have an internal opinion on that. I think you could point to what's going on already with uh meme coins and a certain dog with a little hat. And I mean it's 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 been actually remarkable how how quickly the the willingness um to to gamble on things like meme coins has, has sort of come back. Um and I'm not sure if there's anything to to read there in terms of how this cycle is going to play out, but what is your sort of mental model for? Like this cycle, do you subscribe to the idea of like generally diminishing returns across uh, from one cycle to another? Like help listeners who might not have as much of a solid
2: framework think about if we are in a bull market, what it's going to look like. Yeah, I could uh, maybe just add a couple points and then let Will jump in after. But first off, I think the question there is, will we ever see QE again? And there's a lot of people that disagree with that aspect. Um, I I believe that we will for sure see QE again. Um, you know, just as we discussed at the beginning of the show, there's a lot of debt that needs to be monetized and they're the last person that's really available to do so. So I do think it will occur again. <clears throat> I don't know if it will occur under the same moniker. You know, we might have a new acronym coming out um, for how they decide to do that. But um, and at the same time, it might be not done as quickly. But I do think it's, it will happen again. And I don't think that was the last cycle. And in the same vein, I think what we're seeing is that this gambling... Um, <clears throat> heart of society is increasing. You know, I I just recently got cable again and have started to be watching a lot more sports and and, and hockey and every commercial like it's it's a sports betting uh commercial. It's it's everywhere. So I think at the core of it is the same reflection that's happening in crypto with people gambling on meme coins. And really what it is, is that we're seeing a world where wealth inequality is significantly increasing. The cost of living is significantly increasing. Real wages have been flat for 30 years. So it's sort of like a last gamble. And it's, it's, it's the symptom of the sickness of society somewhat that we need to gamble our way out of the lower middle class. So I think that is going to actually increase Maybe not even if we see an increase in monetary liquidity, I think that's just a symptom of society, and well, feel free to add in
1: yeah i completely agree, and I, you know the wealth inequality is a byproduct of you know fifteen years of of uh you know monetary debasement via q e and and just the dollar depreciating over time, right you know I mean let alone if if they're backstopping things just over time, you know the people that hold assets are continually benefiting by. Uh, you know, the, the amount of monetary units in the system increasing and so, um, you know, creates wealth inequality. But the other thing is, you know, if you see that translate to, uh, you know, over time, actual price inflation on on things that people are buying in their everyday lives, uh, you basically create this incentive for people to want to like hyper speculate on everything. If you go back and read the book, uh, When Money Dies, I read it like two years ago. It's basically about uh, kind of all the activity that took place around, you know, Weimar Germany. And I'm not saying that the U.S. is going to go into to hyperinflation. But on the very extreme end of this, what you saw during that time period was uh, asset prices asset prices mooned because, you know, the, the denominator is increasing. Um, but also just the amount of speculative activity in markets just went through the roof. And so, you know, one thing I, th- I think a lot of people know that I started off very much uh, kind of Bitcoin only, strictly focused on that, didn't even look at anything else. The thing that kind of opened my mind to shifting into looking at other things is, you know, on the same coin of you should expect Bitcoin's price to appreciate because monetary debasement is programmed because they have to they have to print more money to to service the debt the United States does. Um, on that same note, not only should you see money flock to hard assets, and, and I I believe that that'll be mostly Bitcoin, and Bitcoin will devour that entire pie. Will become, you know, the the, um, the you know biggest monetary premium. Uh, beneficiary of of any asset on that same note. If you believe that there's going to be a ton of monetary debasement, you should also on that same note believe that there's going to be a ton of speculation. And this is kind of the whole thesis of, you know, the hyper financialization of everything. Right. And I think crypto is kind of the cleanest uh, recipient of all that activity. Um, you know, a a lot of people say crypto is is strictly speculative and it's inherently speculative. Um, I think that's true. And I don't think that's necessarily a, a horrible thing. But I think the the same kind of argument and, and you know maybe a lot of the maxi crowd would would push back and say, well, you know, Bitcoin is, is kind of the surest thing. I don't want to participate in, in, in that type of stuff, that's fine. But I, I think um you know, when you kind of lay it out on the same coin of, of believing that Bitcoin should appreciate in price because of monetary debasement, you should also acknowledge that there's probably going to be a massive influx in, in kind of speculative activity around that. And and again, I think the, the largest beneficiary of that is crypto in addition to kind of broader gambling, but that, that might also be brought into kind of crypto native applications as well.
0: One thing I'd be very curious to get your, your thoughts on is what's going on with Ethereum right now. So Ethereum had you know, a vision that was very different. And I, I actually think you could see it as sort of a counter reaction to Bitcoin, which is Bitcoin, there was this conflict fla- fought back in 2017 called the block size wars, the big versus the small blockers with very different sort of visions for where the Bitcoin project could go. The small blockers won. And ultimately, what we end up with, uh, what we wound up with was what I would argue is kind of an app chain for money, right? There's not a whole lot of utility, but the utility is just that it's extremely safe and secure block space, extremely decentralized and therefore, you know, resistant to maybe like censorship or a nation state sort of attack. And it was kind of hyper optimized for this one use case. And Ethereum said, well, hold on a second, you know, maybe if we had a little bit more flexibility here, a slightly larger blocks, smaller block times, and a more general smart contracting language, we could build a lot of things here. And instead of the value being derived from this very specific property of its block space, we can actually build real applications on it. Um, And so Ethereum kind of has gone through this this, um, evolution as being a smart contract platform to ETH as ultrasound money. And I would be very curious to get a sense from you guys about whether or not you view Ethereum also as some sort of commodity-like money, something like that. Um, and also, it's obviously underperformed this year quite a bit. So I don't know if you have any more specific thoughts on that.
1: Felix, I see you smile. So it's all that you take it.
2: <laughs> yeah, just the uh, the ultrasound money meme uh, got me smiling there. Yeah, I mean, I think to, to circle back to that question, I'll just start with summing up my view of, of Bitcoin through a macro lens. And for me, it's this idea of this uh, decentralized, um, pristine collateral is a word that really got thrown around the last, the last few years. But for me, it's, it's this, uh, this neutral Reserve asset or collateral piece that can be traded either between major institutions in the world um, that can hold its value against uh, fiat debasement, and I think it's it's a really powerful idea, and it really stands on its own from everything aside that we're talking about. So for me, that sits there as this idea of of, of really solving and being a life raft a lot of the issues we talked about in the first half of the show. And the other side of things, I see this, this new paradigm of financial and technological innovation occurring um, that is, has less of a need to fulfill those needs of, of outright full-on decentralization um, and reserve currency. So for me, this idea of, of ETH trying to go after this ultrasound money idea and basically competing with Bitcoin, I think is, is totally wrong. Um, and it should focus on a lot more of what's you know, a, a protocol like Solana is trying to do, which is to become that instant settlement, high throughput layer for the new financial system where we see instant settlement of uh, real world assets or something like that on there. So I think it's, it's leaving ETH in this weird spot where we're seeing a lot of activity move towards Solana right now, because they really focused on, on speed and then decentralized after versus ETH. It was a lot more about decentralized first and then scale afterwards. And some are in there, basically retrofit the ultrasound money idea onto it. Um, so for me, I see those two worlds living complementary. I think we have Bitcoin as its own thing. And then we have this new financial digital system being developed um, that can live on its own as well. So I think that's leaving ETH in this weird spot right now because uh, there's there's part of that community that's been focused on trying to basically compete with Bitcoin. And then there's the other half of the community that's trying to compete with these new uh, high throughput L1s. So it's leaving it in this weird spot, which is what we're seeing right now. So obviously Solana,
0: I feel like, has been the comeback story of Certainly this year, and yeah. To to sum it up, I think they took a, you know, I've 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 heard Anatoly discuss this. So he was an engineer at Qualcomm, and you know when he was writing software, you know one of the things that you're you're doing when you're writing software is trying to anticipate the growth of hardware. And so he was always trying to write software, and that with the assumption that hardware was going to grow, so he didn't have to rewrite his code uh, sort of year over year. And that is exactly I think the thesis that Solana had, which is we still we care about decentralization, but we're going to ultimately allow our uh, you know, basically designed our current requirements on the idea that eventually hardware is going to get more efficient and it's going to become cheaper and more decentralized over time. In addition to a strong repricing, I think one of the most violent sudden narrative shifts that I've ever seen in between, like kind of away from Ethereum and towards Solana. So, you know, do you expect that to continue going into this coming year? Is that, is it more of a flash in the pan from your standpoint? And there's going to be some sort of mean reversion back to Ethereum. I mean, how do you How do you kind of interpret this rotation, whether or not it's here to stay?
1: Um, Yeah, I can take this. Um, Yeah, I think like what's taken place over the last couple of months has really kind of opened up the discussion in the smart contract landscape of, you know, very much just the first principles ground up view of, okay, like, you know, what are we optimizing for here? Um, I think, interestingly, this kind of sets up uh, a pretty good condition for some of these Uh, kind of higher throughput EVM based chains to do well. So we've seen say run pretty aggressively over the last, uh, kind of two weeks. And I know Monad is launching sometime, uh, mid next year. Um, these types of things are pretty interesting because you kind of take the best of, of both worlds from, you know, kind of a high throughput side on, on what's really been driving the price action for Solana. Uh, whereas, you know, still maintaining EVM compatibility. So, you know, a lot of these, you know, contracts can pretty seamlessly plug in. Uh, so that's kind of one area of the market. And uh, Michael, I don't know if you want to get into this uh, tweet I had about a couple of my uh, theses so I can show my bags. Uh, but this is this is one of the uh, <laughs> this is this is one of the, the theses that I think uh, will probably do well throughout the year. Is you know these these uh, you know the kind of smart contract platforms that sit at kind of the intersection of both Solana and Ethereum. I just think from kind of a mind share and, and narrative standpoint, it, it makes a ton of sense.
0: So Blockworks recently did an analyst call, and I feel like that is the Despite it having sort of already played out, I feel like that is the big narrative to understand in this coming year. And, you know, even for me, I feel like most people who aren't super on-chain natives spend all of their time, you know, LPing or trading even during bear markets. Like, I feel like many people had a very similar experience, which is like, okay, prices are starting to go back up. I'm gonna buy some stuff that you can only get on chain, and I'm gonna do some of that on Ethereum, some of it on Solana. And there's been this kind of like, uh, Light bulb moment where you go back on Ethereum and it feels like all right, everything costs sixty bucks. You know, I've got a bridge to these layer twos. Man, it's been a while since I've done this. This just feels shitty. But on Solana, everything just works and in it's instant. And you know, we've been waiting. There's a lot of a uh, there's a lot of debate. You know, internally within crypto about fees and whether or not fees are a good thing. Again, I think people talk past each other on this specific issue. But definitely, I think. Now that there's a functioning, legitimate community that has extremely low fees and very short block times, it just feels much better to operate over there. And people have been wondering when UX is ultimately going to be a big determinant. And I feel like this is probably the cycle. And if you aren't innovating on that, then that's going to be really tough. Now for layer twos, they have the ability to do that, right? Like Monad is leading the charge on re-architecting the EVM. I know the Ethereum Foundation is super interested in that. And uh, I think that's the, the sort of, opportunity set for the arbitrums and optimisms layer twos of the world. But I agree with you, Will. I feel like that is the trend to understand going into this year, actually. And I would expect to see that continue.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think also um there's a decent chance that uh dare I say, uh, as people have been trying to like take a stab at this and I don't have a trade on for this, but that there might be a rotation from BTC into ETH after the Bitcoin ETF gets approved as people maybe shift focus towards a potential ETH ETF. And so I think it it makes it even more interesting if you have sold that's ran really aggressively throughout the years up whatever seven, eight X off the lows. Um, And then, you know, if you do have kind of a mini one to two month run for ETH, uh, potentially around some type of ETH ETF front running, then it really opens up that discussion even further. And I think there's a pretty clean kind of wide open setup for for someone to kind of step in and say, hey, look, we kind of provide the, the best of both worlds. So I think, uh, you know, the, the L1 landscape's probably the the most open for competition that it's probably ever been.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I want to, I want to ask you about some of these other, uh, maybe like public markets plays. So we could talk a little bit about Coinbase and miners. So, you know, Coinbase, I was going to say quietly, but it's only very, very loudly has outperformed uh, over the course of the last year. You know, there was a, a point in the last 18 months, I'm not a hundred percent sure when, around FTX, um, when I think Coinbase was trading at, Sub thirty five bucks um, today. It's around one fifty, um, and it feels just like knowing a little bit about uh, Coinbase, and I read the earnings reports just for fun. You know, they've trimmed their headcount, they've rained uh, losses in. I feel like it's not quite priced in yet, but crypto has done extremely well this past quarter. I feel like that was the bottom in transaction volumes, but now they have all of these other really interesting revenue streams as well. Be it what they're doing on base or the partnership that they have with Circle with interest income. I mean, what you know, what's your sort of thought on maybe Coinbase going into this next year?
1: I think um, when you look at Coinbase and the public miners, they both kind of have this um, over-encompassing kind of theme that I, I think is, is really interesting in terms of uh, allocating to them as a crypto native. I think with both of them, you have kind of this informational edge as, as a crypto native and um, we could get into both. But to start with Coinbase, you know, I think the street fundamentally views them as just a, you know, traditional exchange. Um, and all their revenue comes from fees on the exchange. Um, meanwhile, I think Coinbase has built out several verticals over the last year from uh, everything from, you know, staking as a service, uh, their base L2, uh, wallet as a service. They have the offshore derivatives exchange. They just announced that they're going to prioritize uh, pushing you know, spot trading outside of the U.S. Um, also the circle acquisition, which was brilliant, right? Because it basically hedged the monetary conditions in which their business does well. So, you know, in, in periods of, um, you know, when interest rates are low, their business typically does well. Um, When interest rates are higher, then Circle's business is doing well because they basically just, uh, you know, issue the stable coin, back it with treasuries and pocket the yield. And so I don't know exactly the percentage of, of Circle's business that Coinbase owns, but I think that was a pretty brilliant acquisition as well. Um, and then, you know, they have the uh, SSA agreements with all the ETFs or the custodian for the ETFs. There's, there's a couple different verticals of the business that I think they've established over uh, the last year that the street maybe doesn't fundamentally understand or really is giving a ton of weight to. And so I think as a crypto native, uh, you have kind of the almost informational arbitrage play to say, hey, look, you know, we understand how these kind of crypto native verticals uh, may benefit the business, especially in kind of a raging crypto bull market whereas the street doesn't. And that's kind of where you're, you're maybe edges or, or where you're kind of expecting that repricing to take place. Um, and then same, you know, broadly with kind of the, you know, cyclical nature of, of crypto. Um, you know, I think you can make an argument that uh, kind of having the, the knowledge of this kind of crypto native cycle that maybe isn't getting priced in by these kind of trad firms into some of these, these uh, you know, public crypto equities. And then on the minor side, I think, uh, where you kind of have an informational edge as a crypto native, um, is in basically having, you know, real-time data, right? And like, you know, I know you guys launched the, the data product. This was kind of, I'm guessing the, the whole thesis of launching the data product um, is, you know, in nutritional in finance, you don't know a company's earnings in, until the end of every quarter. Um, whereas with miners, we can literally look at, I can tell you right now, um, you know, the amount of fees that were, uh, you know, printed by the Bitcoin network, uh, what percentage of that came from the block subsidy and which, what percentage of, of that came from fees, uh and so you know we can see in real time uh over the last you know called month or so we had this we had this initial kind of run up in in Orton's activity at the end of march early april of this year a lot of people said that was just the flash in the pan we've seen that start to run back up i think very rarely do you want to kind of like fade the second the second bubble of something um so we'll see if they have uh sticking power but uh, you know i think if they do the street's not pricing in um a i, th- I think uh you know higher bitcoin prices but then also, you know, kind of sustained activity for ordinals. If you, if you go and look at, if you go and look at fees, I mean, we're sitting at, you know, 500 K to 750 K, like kind of on average roughly throughout Q3. I mean, fees on Saturday were $23.6 million. mean, right, That's insane. It's like a, it's like a 40 X increase in fees. Like that, if that sustains, it's absolutely not priced in. Um, so look, I, I think, uh, you know, if, if you're bullish on the ordinals, you probably want to own a couple of these miners. So even just what
0: you're describing there, ordinal. how many Wall Street analysts do you think are getting in the weeds on something like Woodnulls? I mean, the, it's just, you know, it's one of the, it was, one, it was what, one of the original selling points that attracted me to this industry is that there is so much opportunity for edge. Um, like if you look at something like Amazon, you've got 50 analysts that have been covering that. Most of them have been covering it for 10 years. You know, what could you possibly hope to eke out there in terms of real informational advantage. Whereas something like Bitcoin, you know, people outside of the space don't know that there's an entire renaissance going on in Bitcoin block space. Transaction fees have reversed four-year trend, five-year trend and are exploding upwards. Like this is going to be super profitable for miners and it's being driven by NFTs. I mean, it's so cool, but it's also, there's so much opportunity for edge uh, and advantage there. So I completely agree with you. What well, one other point I'd be I'd be curious to get your guys take on cuz I feel like this is another for a sort of public market proxies for crypto. It's there's a I think there's an enormous demand especially during bull markets to get exposure to crypto without owning any of the underlying. So you kind of see this hidden premium in miners, Coinbase, MicroStrategy, it used to be um oh man I'm blanking on the name of the bank. But uh like the bank. Yeah, Silvergate. Yeah, Silvergate this used to be the case uh Voyager, Galaxy, Etc. So I feel like that's, you know, we're starting to see that a little bit again, but I feel like we're still, still not even there yet, but something to be aware
1: of. I think it'll be interesting to see, um, does the street continue to use MicroStrategy as that kind of purest uh, you know, way to get exposure in the public markets to Bitcoin, as opposed to the ETF. And, uh, Saylor went on I was CNBC yesterday and he actually did a pretty compelling pitch, which is, you know, basically MicroStrategy is a levered Bitcoin ETF with no fees. Right. And, and you know, um, when you look at uh, people keep talking about he's, you know, diluting shareholders because whenever MicroStrategy trades at a premium to the underlying, he issues shares, buys Bitcoin, uh, and that's diluting shareholders. But in Bitcoin terms, it's not. If you look at the number of Bitcoin per share, that's been going up only since inception. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, MicroStrategy is a really interesting way uh, to get exposure, even with the ETF still alive. And, and I think it would be interesting to see does that kind of premium uh persist after the ETF because i think that you can make an argument that that's there because there's no other uh really pure way to get exposure um but you know i would guess is going to continue issuing issuing equity as as much as he can to keep stacking bitcoin and then you know if you really really zoom it out like 20 years from now you think bitcoin is going to you know whatever you know nominal fiat price you think it's going to uh you can make an argument that microstrategy might be one of the most you know valuable companies on the planet so I think uh, that's one of the most interesting ones to me as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of people don't like Michael Saylor, and I'm not going to comment that. Like, I get the bombastic style. He definitely has a lot of energy, which you can either appreciate or not. I think the trade that he made with MicroStrategy is going to go down as one of the best of all time. He it looked like it might blow up on him uh, with his, uh, you know, because he, he's issuing debt as well to buy Bitcoin, but. It looks like he made it through the worst of that. If we go into a Bitcoin bull market, yeah, he's going to end up doing phenomenally. And I would
1: shout agree. out to Sam Martin from the Blockworks uh, research team. We did a piece on this at the end of last year. Everybody was saying that uh, MicroStrategy was going to get liquidated, but uh, obviously it wasn't the case. They actually ended up buying back uh, the, I believe they bought back more Bitcoin or got back more Bitcoin through the Silvergate loan whenever they were unwinding. So he actually came, that was the only thing he could have technically got liquidated on in a traditional sense. He actually came out on the other end of that with more Bitcoin than he started with.
0: Yeah, I think the bet, I'm just looking at Bitcoin treasuries and I'm not 100% sure if I'm, I think the cost basis is like 5 billion. The value of the Bitcoin now is 5.2 billion. The value is about 7.7. I mean, you can run those numbers on whatever your expectations are for where Bitcoin goes from here. But yeah, that man could be sitting on a lot of Bitcoin pretty soon, um, which is just uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, good for him if it works out. Guys, you, uh, unfortunately, we got to wrap up here, but, you know, reflexivity research, I just, th- I can't plug it enough. Um, I think you, you heard on this call in between Felix and Will, a very unique value proposition in terms of understanding and distilling the macro down into sort of actually very actionable advice on the crypto side. So really unrivaled offering, highly recommend you go check them out. Um, guys, what's the, what's the best way that folks could either follow you or find out more info about reflexivity?
1: Sure. You can check out Reflexivity at uh, reflexivityresearch.com. Appreciate the kind words. Uh, Blockworks Research is awesome as well. I talk to those guys all the time. We try to bounce ideas off them because they're a brilliant group of guys. Uh, We put out a ton of free content. We have a free newsletter. And then also behind Paywall, we put out some content and have a uh, a Mm bi-weekly analyst call that we do. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at WClementeIII. Pass off to Felix. Felix also has uh, his own macro newsletter, which kind of combines... Uh, macro and kind of degen crypto stuff, which I think is a really interesting overlay. You should check that out as well.
2: Yeah, thanks. Well, um, we'll definitely pass on the links, but you can follow me on Twitter, um, Fijo underscore Inc. Um, just the first bit of my first name, uh, first bit of my last name, underscore Inc. Um, or on my uh, newsletter that Will mentioned, uh, degen macro. Uh, .substack.com. Um, but yeah, you know, I want to give a shout out to Blockworks too. You know, I think you guys are also really killing it at this intersection of uh, macro and crypto. And it's uh, my favorite podcast to listen to because those are my, my two worlds that I, that I live really deeply in and I'm really passionate about. And there's not a lot of people that are doing it. So it's really cool to be able to go on a podcast and talk about macro and those parts and then also jump into the DJ meme, meme coin stuff. So yeah, thanks again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you bet guys. I appreciate the kind words as well. We'll, uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Awesome. Absolutely.
1: Thanks.
0: Cheers.